Ahoy! It's your boy, and welcome to episode 96 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. Also, video podcast. Available now at thisismpod.com. Uh, we've had some trouble with it the last couple of weeks. I'm, if you've been watching the podcast, you can see that I have a new camera. Um, I'm sort of boasting about the uh, improved video quality, uh, and although it's better than what than what it has been, uh, I've had some trouble. Uh, you know, for someone who's worked with video for years and years and years, I'm sort of disappointed that I'm having this much trouble uh, making the leap to shooting with a fucking iPhone. Um, but yeah, it's just I'm not used to handling the file sizes. I've had some system upgrades and. Um, you know, every time you get a new phone or you upgrade your operating system, there's always a suite of problems that you encounter, uh, that are very frustrating. So not that everything's worked out, but I do think, uh, the video will be uploaded on time from now on. Um, excuse me. So the video podcast will be available at thisismpod.com. I think this will be the best looking one yet. Hopefully, um, uh, you can watch the video podcast on our website or you can click through on YouTube and watch the episodes there. Uh, subscribe, all that good stuff. It's uh, kind of a big week for me. Uh, I went to the dentist for the first time in a long time. I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you how long, but um, let's just say I've been living in the Bay Area for 14 years, and I've been at the dentist once. I don't know how many years ago. It could have been like seven years ago, but I played this music festival that was happening in San Francisco, and part of paying the artists was that they gave us a free dental appointment through, I believe, an organization called Music Cares. Uh, you can probably look them up and see what they do. Um, but in addition to getting paid, they also provided all the artists with a dentist checkup in the, in the same place that we performed in. So it was kind of weird, like, going there and playing a show, and then I think later that week coming back and seeing a dentist on the same stage you performed on. But um, be that as it may, I was worried about that appointment, thinking they were going to look in my mouth and see a horror show. Uh, but thankfully, there was really nothing wrong. I think they filled, like, one cavity. Um, it's been probably seven years since then, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I sort of left thinking it didn't go that bad, but when I was actually recounting what they found to my girlfriend and, and then later my brother, I realized, oh, it's a fucking travesty. But I basically have a few cavities. Uh, I'm going back in two weeks to get a crown put on one of my teeth. Um, I have all four of my wisdom teeth in, which the doctor was adamant that I need to get removed, so that needs to happen. Um, he also recommended that I get Invisalign for my teeth, uh, which, uh, you know, I, I feel like I sound defensive when I say this, but I, there's a big part of me that thinks that there's a big part of dentistry, which is a goddamn racket. Um, and I think that may be part of it, but be that as it may, whether it's a racket or not, that's what he suggested I do. Um, and then the other part, there was one more. Oh, he wrote me a prescription for this special tooth toothpaste which uh, I have to use in the evenings. So uh, a couple cavities, I need a, a, a crown. And also he said, depending on how that crowning went, you know, if I had severe pain after that, um, then I might need a root canal. So, you know, it was humbling. It was kind of one of those things where, I think it's like a lot of things in life. You know, you put something off for a little bit and then you get some anxiety about it. And you think, well, I... It sounds stupid, but it's how we rationalize a lot of things. But we, it's like we don't go to the dentist 
because we're scared of what they're going to tell us because we haven't been in so long. But of course, continuing to not go just exacerbates the problem. Um, so yeah, you kind of got to go in and eat crow and kind of have a big slice of whole pie as you sit there. You know, I, it's thankfully it's like right around the corner from my house, so I just had to walk in. Uh, they did. They took like 28 x-rays of my mouth, just so they have them on record. And, um, you know, it, it's just, uh, it's a vulnerable feeling, you know, having a, some stranger look in your mouth for the first time and tell you, yeah, there's a whole bunch of problems here that we can fix. Uh, nothing catastrophic. It's not like I have to have all, all my teeth pulled out. It's all things that can be taken care of. Um, but, of course, it's not going to be free. And so, you know, I'm looking at, you know, 1500 to, you know, two grand, um worth of uh, dental stuff if uh if i have to see things through to the end you know it could be half of that if uh you know things are are, are pretty good but um you know it's kind of embarrassing um but in some ways you know because i don't want to throw her under the bus but my girlfriend has not been to the dentist in a while either now her teeth look fucking fantastic to me um but she also hasn't been in a while and she's kind of concerned about going and I said, you know what, even though it probably went maybe not as bad as I dreamed, I mean, it could have gone a lot worse, but it, it's, you know, it's about as bad a, about it as bad as the dentist is going to get within reason, right, in terms of how they think your teeth are doing. Um, and yet knowing, it actually is, uh, alleviates a lot of uh, concern. You know, I had more feelings about going in than I did leaving after I got the verdict. Does that make sense? It's the not knowing that's hard. It's not even knowing that it's bad. It's the not knowing. For some reason, I'm thinking about crime and punishment. I know we, uh, I think it was like, um, it may not have been last New Year's, but the New Year's before that, where I had like a four-hour episode where I was talking about interrogations and crime and punishment and such and such. But, um, you know, there's that sort of liminal space between... Uh, I don't know, worrying about something you've done or worrying about the consequences of your actions or you have some sort of Damocles type thing looming over your head, you know, trying to outrun, you know, the consequences of something that is really more hard. It's really harder than having to live with the actual consequences. I mean, this is, uh, this is just a thought experiment, obviously. Obviously, there's a part of me that thinks there's probably more turmoil and angst that comes with being someone who's living on the lamb or running from the law than, like, just being in prison. Now, check in with me when I've served some actual time, but... You know, I, I... For some reason, recently, I've gotten back into watching interrogation videos. Again, I think it says I'm in school. I need, like, content. It's like, uh, there are some times where I absolutely need absolute silence to focus on my schoolwork. But there's plenty of times where I'm doing something that's just kind of like, it just takes up a lot of time. It actually doesn't take up a lot of attention. And so I need some extra stimulation to sort of make it tolerable. And usually that's some entertainment content, either a podcast or a video that doesn't require me to look at it, that I can just have the audio playing on, uh, playing in the background. And so I think, uh, I guess intuitively, I mentioned listening to some John MacArthur sermons, which I just was listening to one just now, which I thought was actually very interesting, uh, but also police interrogations. And, uh, obviously the big old lure is watching someone talk their way out of something that, you know, it, it's just sort of a doomed scenario, you know, that there's, there's something so special about that moment where someone is imploring, uh, based on morality, based on God or standards or whatever, 
I'm not the type of person who would do X, Y, and Z, and the police are sitting across from them holding some information the other person is unaware that they have. Um, you know, they know that they did it, and someone's just imploring them. You know, the, the most frustrating thing to watch about those encounters is the police sort of have to engage in this sort of um, dumb charade. You know, I sometimes imagine myself just kind of coming in and whether it's like my crisis line counseling skills or something, but you feel like you could kind of just engage them in a different way. Because sometimes you see like the interrogator and uh, the alleged perpetrator um, just engaging in these screaming matches, you know? And the interrogator always has to say things like, here, man, I'm here to help you out. And if you want to be a man and admit what you did and yada, yada, yada. And it's just like, it's this weird charade. It's very uncomfortable to watch. But there's something about that space where somebody feels, you know, there's usually like, uh, <laughs> the cops sort of like get you to tell your tale and then they just sort of relate something. They say, well, you know what? We actually have some videotape. And they have that moment where the person goes, uh-huh. And you can just tell that they are firing on all cylinders. You just see the gears in their brain just turning faster and faster. And they're like, oh shit. I thought like, they think, oh, I thought I was doing pretty well. Right? I may, as soon as they think, man, I may just get out of this. They feel the conversation wrapping up. The police say, is there anything else you want to tell us? And I'm like, nope, I think that about covers it. And they go, okay, well, <clears throat> before you go, um, we actually have some videotape we want you to watch. And they go, oh, uh-oh, didn't see that coming. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, that moment. There's one, uh, there's a YouTube channel, it's called JCS. I think it stands for like something, somebody, like Jimmy Can't Swim or some crazy thing like that, but it's a criminal psychology YouTube channel that so many people are emulating now. Uh, they do these sort of hour-long, you know, series or specials or episodes on certain interrogations or whatever the case may be. And uh, the style is so effective that everybody's just sort of emulating it. But they have one, there's a young, um, Asian-American female uh, who ended up like hiring her boyfriend to like kill her parents and something like that. Just a crazy story. But the title of the video is What Will Happen to Me or What Will Happen to Me or something like that. I'm sure you'll find it. Um, but there's a part of me, that moment where the plot twists and it's like, oh, this person's going to fucking jail and they realize it. On some level, they start to negotiate um, for themselves and kind of with the interrogator like, they'll concede some guilt, but they don't want to give up the whole thing. And there's a part of me, I had this thought, and this sounds uh, maybe overly romantic or, or I don't know, overly poignant or poetic or something, but that question sort of popped into my mind, like, what will happen to me? And I had this thought where I said, whatever happens, you better hope you get exactly what you deserve. You know, not in some sort of cosmic right-sizing sense, but really, like, for your own soul and spirit, like, you better hope that you get exactly what you deserve. Because when you think about it, if you actually commit a crime like that, you know, when you think about your soul or your spirit or what whatever your life is going to mean after this incident, there's a part of me that says the only chance you have of being reconciled to yourself or finding any actual peace is when you if is if you get the punishment that you actually deserve for the crime that you committed. Like, until you actually pay for what you did, you'll never be free. Like, one example that comes up is O.J. Simpson, who, um, 
you know, maybe this will be one of these things like 10 years from now, they'll have a, a series on Netflix that shows how O.J. Simpson was actually innocent and everybody who was just absolutely convinced of his guilt is just like, you know, b buying into some sports uh, quasi-racist stereotype about violence, et cetera, et cetera. But I think anyone who looks at the O.J. Simpson case, it's it's very clear that this person's guilty. Um, but there was a whole incident, well, and I think he's a free man now, but like he basically was like, uh, in jail for a couple of years for like hiring people to like steal his memorabilia back from someone else. But there was this idea at the time that was very popular that in some way he was living with his own guilt. And rather than just like being home and being grateful, there's a sort of self-destructive quality that somebody adopts who lives with guilt as if they, they have to be punished somehow, even if they can never be retroactively punished for the thing that they did, they have to punish themselves or be punished or they adopt some type of uh, self-destructive behavior so that they can uh, eventually be punished for the thing that they did and got away with. And I know that's kind of a weird spiritual perspective to take, but I think there's something like that might actually be true. You know, there's a part of me that thinks if you went to jail, of course it'd be a nightmare and who knows what the fuck would happen to you uh, in jail or who the type of person that you'd become. But when you do watch specials on people who like end up living the rest of their life in jail, you know, they sort of age out of the general population. And um, when they're sort of reconciled to this is how they're going to spend their time. You know, anybody who finds some level of peace, they really kind of accept what they did. You know, and even for the people who like spend the rest of their life in jail, there are programs where like they meet with the surviving, you know, they happen to kill somebody. They'll meet with the surviving victims or they'll even meet with the person that they... You know, maybe they assaulted somebody and left them injured for the rest of their life or attempted murder or something like that. But there are programs where they sit across from the person that they harmed or the surviving family members of the person that they harmed. You know, and there's this idea that there's some sort of, um, you know, that the only freedom that exists really is forgiveness. You know, forgiveness, you know, on the part of the victims, the only freedom they'll ever have from the tragedy is when they forgive the perpetrator. And in some ways, the only, you know, freedom that the perpetrator will have is when they forgive themselves. You know, they might even have freedom regardless of whether, you know, the, the victims forgive them if they can forgive themselves for what they did. And there's a part of me that says the only way you could ever forgive yourself is if you receive a proper punishment for the life that you lived, you know, that you get your, your, your just desserts. That might be a good title for the episode, your just desserts. It's a weird phrase that, I don't know, I don't know what it means exactly, but you get your just desserts. Hmm? I mean, in another episode, we were talking about Donald Trump. Like, how how lame is it that if you're the type of person who it actually doesn't matter how much money you actually have in your bank account, how successful your businesses actually are, the only thing that matters to some people is the perception of their success, how successfully they are perceived to be by other people. Not the power that they actually wield, but how powerful people uh, imagine that they are. I mean, in a way, we see that in all assets of society, you know, like people who like, like, like the, uh, there's a whole lane of videos, if you haven't seen it, 
Um, you, you hopefully you'll get a, good, a few good chuckles out of it, but it's fake martial artists. You have these old guys who are the heads of these like martial arts schools that have been around for decades and decades. And the uh, masters of these schools have, have no real martial arts skills. They're bullshit artists, but almost like religious char charismatics, they have, uh, you know, bodies of students or schools who sort of just follow the same bullshit and all pretend in this sort of like magic energy fighting or something. And anytime that master is, pits themselves against an actual martial, martial artist, they get their ass kicked, you know? And you can find these videos on YouTube. Um, I mean, I guess there's two lanes. There's the, like, uh, the, there's just the patently fraudulent, like, uh, uh, black belt jujitsu people who, like, open up a school, and an actual black belt comes in and observes the way that the person's teaching and goes, you're not a black belt. And they just challenge them to a fight and just kick the shit out of them in front of all their students. Um, but whether you're the, I don't know, there's sort of the sad case, and then there's sort of the, I don't know, there's almost a more austere example, right, with a sort of elderly... Uh, master of some martial arts school. Um, I guess it really makes you wonder, like, does that person know that they're full of shit? They have to, right? Or are they so convinced of their own bullshit that they actually believe that they have a skill? My guess is it probably starts off as charlatan, but if you've been celebrated for so long for something, do you kind of get convinced of your own power and ability? Like, we have this whole thing in life right now, this whole fake it till you make it, imposter syndrome. I think about this. You know, because as an artist especially, you go through life and you think that you're developing this sort of calibration where you can actually evaluate uh, the quality of your work. Um, or your, uh, you know, how close you are. You know, what you are basically honing your own standards for your own work. And I think for, I think myself at times... Excuse me, the times where I've, you know, relied most on what I thought other people thought of my work to sort of gauge how well I was doing. Um, in hindsight, when I look back on that work, it actually doesn't really hold up for me. But the times where I was just sort of relying on my own standard, a lot of it just circumstantially, like no one else was listening to my music. Um, that stuff actually holds up better for me. And the reason that that's even relevant is because I think in life sometimes we're told that we all have imposter syndrome, you know, and whether it's moving up in our position at work, uh, moving up in school, whatever the case may be, you know, I think we all feel like if this is, you know, knowing what I know about myself and what, what I determine my skills or my facility to be, um, it's kind of disappointing to find myself at this stage in life because when I was younger, I looked at people who were in this position or imagined when I was in this position that I would feel very different, you know? Like, I guess for me right now, it's my language studies. I'm taking Chinese. I just had another test. I uh, will very likely get an A in it. But what I mean is I'm coming, you know, I have two weeks left of this language studies this summer, and I will have done a year's worth of Chinese in 12, in 12 weeks. Now, there are limitations from studying a language in the summer in, in the sense that I'm about to talk about how I feel like I, I'm not actually learning a whole lot, or I'm not learning what I probably would have learned if I've taken, uh, if I had taken these courses over the course of the academic year. Um, this is not a great example because practically that's true, right? It's happening very fast. 
But what I mean is, you know, being a good student and taking a good test is one skill set. And then actually learning the language is something else. So what I'm saying is, as I'm about to, well, I currently am taking classes at a very prestigious university. And in my first few classes, I'm going to get an A in them. Now, to all external standards, I'm doing everything that I need to do. Do you know what I mean? And yet, when I sit with myself, I feel painfully aware that although I'm meeting the criteria of the class, although I'm doing as well as I can do according to how the teacher is grading the course, and I guess for all practical reasons as well as one could hope, I also know that by adhering to those standards, I'm kind of shortchanging myself. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm trying to find a point of contact that, uh, with creativity. But it's like, I believe on some level, like one of the most disappointing parts about being a successful artist is kind of knowing that along the way you made concessions that were, that looked like success to other people that once you've actually accomplished what you want, you kind of look at the work that you've made and you go, mm, it's not what I envisioned though. It's not what I wanted to create. Anyway, I feel my mind starting to uh, fracture a little bit, but um, I'm trying to stay with this point rather than just fucking abandon it. Um, I don't know. You know what it is? It's really, <laughs> we're at episode 96 of these 100 episodes, and I sort of had this thought today, actually, as I was going to the bathroom, honestly, but I think after this, I'm going to take a break. <laughs> I think I've decided that after episode 100, I'm going to take a break. Um, and try to really decide what I want to do creatively with the next chapter of my life. I mean, uh, I guess there's some something like coincidence exists in the world, but there's a part of me that feels like it's it may not be a coincidence that, you know, as we're approaching level 100, I'm, I'm entering, I mean, it will almost perfectly coincide uh, with starting a new semester uh, of school, uh, you know, reaching 100 episodes of this podcast, um, you know, and there might be other transitions in my life as well, but... Um, I do, I feel like I'm entering another chapter and I think I'm trying to, you know, basically I'm sort of word vomiting at you. Everything I'm spewing out at you is just kind of tangentially related to me trying to think through, you know, what is the next thing that I'm going to do? And, um, you know, it's hard for me because I think, you know, wow, I've done a hundred episodes of this podcast. That's fucking pretty nuts. You know? I know a lot of people who've started the podcast. I don't know that I know a lot of people who've gotten to 100 episodes of one. Uh, or even if they have, have they done it consistently? You know, I think there's been two weeks where we had an episode that came out a little bit late. Um, but, you know, I've known plenty of people who have podcasts, but they do an episode a month. Or they put out two episodes in a week, and then they're gone for a couple weeks, and then they come back. You know, I'm pretty proud of the fact that, um, you know, regardless of how good it is, you know, we've been almost perfectly consistent, you know? In a way, maybe that's why this is coming up. I'm thinking, 
you know, I essentially did the thing I set out to do, and uh, nobody's perfect. But uh, let's say two episodes, I mean, we came up with them anyway, but let's say two episodes didn't come out. That's like a 98%. Actually, it'll be 101 episodes, right? Because there's an episode zero, but it'll essentially be like a 99%, 98-99%. That's about, a, that's about as well as you can do. And so there's a part of me that says, well, you've invested so much time and energy in this thing. Like, why stop? You know? I don't know what I wanted for this podcast in terms of an audience or a reaction or whatever, but, you know, it's not really growing. And, uh, can you hear, there's someone starting to hammer shit outside my window, of course, so I'll be contending with that for the next uh, 45 minutes, probably. Um... You know, but uh, it hasn't really grown in terms of an audience, and that makes sense. I haven't really promoted it, and uh, although I've asked people to share the episode, um, you know, I also realize that, um, you know, it's, the, I mean, really, although uh, we like to pretend that things really spread by word of mouth, and, and sometimes they do, um, but it usually happens once people feel like they're actually a part of something. You know, there's sort of uh, I don't really mean this in the Malcolm Gladwell sense of the of the word, but there's sort of a tipping point where, you know, for people to really become evangelical about something, they, they need to feel like they're a part of something cool. You know, it's that weird middle area where it's like people, you know, it's like people who say like, oh, I liked Blink-182 before they were famous. Well, that's true. But a part of why they seemed special was that they were cool. You know, yeah, they were underground, but it wasn't just it wasn't just that you enjoyed them in a vacuum. It was that they were known by enough people that you were able to like them and get there was some sort of, there was some social currency, right? That they were they were considered cool by enough people that it was cool to like them. Um, if nobody's listening to a band, they're just not cool. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Um, and so yeah, there are people who listen to this podcast every week, and that's great. Um, but we're not really at a point where we're like evangelizing people. And uh, that's nobody's fault but my own, you know. I, I still, I mean, speaking of standards, there's a part of me that feels like if I really, <laughs> you know, there is a part of me that fantasizes if the music or the podcast or whatever is good enough, you know, it should you should be able to create something to a point where it's just, it's it's quality is sort of undeniable. And once you reach that level, it kind of grows its own legs and takes off. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe this sounds nuts, but there's a part of me that realizes, okay, well, we've done 100 episodes of the podcast. That's great. You know, but... And although I'm enjoying it kind of more in the last month or even longer than I have in a long time, maybe it's time to go out on a high note, you know, assuming the next couple episodes are good. You know, maybe it would be a nice place to stop, at least for a while. Um, you know? Because, you know, I don't know. Is 100 episodes enough? Is it time to make room for the next thing? I guess I get lost in this area of, you know, I mean, speaking of standards, part of what I, I say, like, well, do I want to stop? Is it because you've done 100 episodes and the podcast is not more successful? Are you looking for the next thing that might be more successful? And even though I talk a lot about, well, it's not about being successful, it doesn't really matter who's listening or if nobody's listening, you should be doing something that you 
just want to do. You should do it just because you feel called to do it. Um, and I don't know. I don't know where I. I don't know where I stand on that. I guess I sort of wonder how much do I get out of this. I don't know, man. I'm all fucked up. And actually, I think what I'm sitting with a little bit today, too, is I feel like, um, like sometimes in therapy, I'll have these, like, very poignant sessions, you know, where we have, like, some great, you know, we've reached some new insight or level or whatever the case may be. And then when I come back the next week, I'm, like, very disappointed because I feel like once you reach that level, you have these sort of cathartic or profound sessions you kind of want to return to that i mean not that it's always comfortable but you feel like okay well yeah we we i sort of have my finger on the pulse of this new whatever and so you think oh if i'm if i'm still doing good work right or if, I, if i'm following up correctly on that appointment then i'll, I'll have a, a similar experience um and usually you don't you go back and the next appointment is kind of forced uh, at least for me, and maybe it's because you're trying to sort of force that force that poignancy. But there's another element here, which is what I I, I wonder if, if this might be going on is, you know, there's a part of you too that after you you have those cathartic moments, it's like very vulnerable. You know, you say something new, something new comes up that feels like genuinely tender, um, and I think although there's a part of you that is excited to explore more of that and sort of you know poke around and probe into that. The fact, you know, it hasn't come up to date because there's actually something, you know, I don't know if pain is the right word, but there's something tender there. There's something vulnerable there. Um, and so you sort of get defensive, you know, there's sort of just a reactionary shield that comes up. And as I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm like, I'm thinking, oh, you're talking about fucking, you know, fake martial art masters and crime and punishment and, um you know, even talking about the podcast, I'm just, again, I'm sort of talking around what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. You know, it's like I'm talking and pretending as if I haven't spent the last couple episodes talking about, oh my God. And as I'm saying it, I can't, this should have been number one on my list of things that we talked about. You know, I'm talking around, you know, the devastation of, of uh, Bo Burnham's Inside Special coming out and how closely uh, it feels related to this creative project I wanted to do for years and didn't do out of fear. Uh, and now that it's come out, um, I, I feel like uh, there's this nail in the coffin of my, my own opportunity to create the thing that I've wanted to create. So anyway, now that we're back on it, uh, this should have been the first thing I mentioned, but um, I watched Inside right after I recorded the last episode. Well, or a couple hours anyway, but um, I recorded the last podcast. I got all the materials ready as well as I could. I know the video was a couple days late, but the podcast was up and uh, I, that night I watched Inside. And, um, you know, not perfect, but what is. Um, but I have to tell you, it was uh, pretty pretty devastating to watch. Um, 
And again, it's very easy to say in hindsight, you have no reason to believe me. Um, look, uh, mine was, you know, I'm not a standard comedian. You know, the actual content of many of the songs and even the, the, the story were not related, but just the presentation of the entire thing. It is spooky how similar it is from the clothing to the setup to, you know, a, a lot of the presentation to even the structure. Um, it was, uh, it was very hard to watch. And so, you know, the first part of last week was just pretty, you know, I was kind of walking around in this daze and it was like, um, I mean, I even talked about it in therapy. It was like, um, you know, almost like seeing someone dating your ex-girlfriend or something like that. Someone you weren't over, over yet or something like that. Again, it was just this idea, you know, when you, it's, it's, when it's so, you know, I was, I had been living with this idea for like five years in isolation and just sort of marinating on it. And the fact to see it, uh, in so many ways, uh, you know, already completed by somebody else. Again, it was just this feeling, and I think I torture myself with this, but I, I can't, it's, it's how I actually feel about it. It was like, I was given this idea, this, uh, you know, this uh, inspired vision of something that could be created that would be of the moment and compelling. And I didn't do it out of fear um, or something. Maybe there's a more generous way I could put that, but um, we'll call it fear. And um, and it was like it needed to be created. And so the cosmos gave the work to somebody else. Now, again, very different, but what can you, you know, if you want to carry the metaphor, the vessel is very different as well. So, of course, it's going to be colored by who that person is and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in essence, um, you know, I think a part of my sitting here and wondering, like, what is the next chapter going to be is really, you know, trying to think through, okay, is the next step to, to still do the thing irregardless you know, because I think I said on the last episode, there's a part, you know, obviously I was given this idea and I didn't do it for so long. You know, there were a thousand reasons I was telling myself why I, I shouldn't do it. It was too crazy. Um, there were practical concerns in my life. You know, I wasn't sure, I wasn't aware of my financial standings for the immediate future and uh, needing to kind of get my head out of the clouds and go back to school and start investing my time and energy in something that would be able to support me in the future. You know, those were real concerns that I had. Um, but, 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 and again, maybe this is where I go back to this idea of standards. And I'm not even sure I've been able to convey this clearly to my therapist, but although that's true, there, it's like there's nothing that can save me from what I actually know to be true on like a deeper level which is even if those external pressures weren't there, like let's just say someone cut me, handed me a blank check and said, whatever it takes financially for you to support yourself or pay your bills or even create this thing, tell me what space you need. Tell me what material you need. Tell me whatever. Like would I have still done it? And I honestly believe the answer is no. And the reason for it would have been fear. I was too scared to do it. You know, I, it was too big. I thought I was going to fail. Even if I did try, it would never be good enough. And it would be this squandered opportunity. 
You know, I go back to how I feel about songwriting a lot of the times. I would spend so much time on the lyrics until they were absolutely perfect because, you know, every song to me felt like this, you know, gift from the creative. And if I didn't do as well as I could, then it was a squandered opportunity. You know, and again, when you finish something, it's always different. And it's like, uh, I don't know, I'm picturing like shooting a basket or something. Of course, you always fall just a little bit short. Part of that is, you know, you're trying to create this, you know, um, you know, it's almost like in the creative realm, whatever you get a vision for, whether it's a song or a play or a dance, you know, in your mind's eye, it, it, it is still in the creative realm where it's sort of perfect. And your role as an artist, you know, you're sort of like a, um, like you're doing this, like the creative act is sort of a seance where you're doing your be the best you can to sort of summon and invoke this creative muse to sort of recreate as best you can in this realm, this idea that exists perfectly in another plane, you know, and so you're using your worldly tools. And so it's always going to be fractured or, um, you know, refracted in some way through like this physical world or medium. You're trying to, you know, uh, kind of birth this thing into uh, into the to be manifest. It's more than just potentiality. Now it's like manifest. It's always going to be a little bit different, but in some ways that's the fuel that or that desire to create something that's actually perfect to fully realize very literally to fully realize something that you've been given a vision of in this world. That's you know your lack of ability to have done it yet is what fuels the next creation and. Again, to bring it back to this idea, it doesn't matter what other people perceive it to be. You know, every successful artist has been told, you know, that not only is what they're doing good enough, they have fans, they have an audience, but I think the real artists are never pleased with that. You know, and even if their entire fan base believes that their best work is behind them and they're sort of perplexed at what they're doing, you know, if that person is really in touch with their muse or their creative wellspring, they're going to follow it wherever it leads. I mean, I think a perfect example of this is Bob Dylan. Now, I don't like everything Bob Dylan's ever done. Uh, I'm not even as enamored with his early stuff as many people are. Like, I don't treat it like as if it's sort of a canonical religious sacrosanct. Uh, of course, his especially his early stuff. There's some stuff in there that's like completely unmatched by any other songwriter. Um, and even though there are, like, I remember there's some quote, um, I forget who said it, but somebody said like Towns Van Sant would like stand on Bob Dylan's coffee table and dance all over it. Like he's a much better songwriter than Bob Dylan. I think in some ways you could say that, like maybe Towns Van Sant was a more sort of lyric or, or um, lit literal or I can't think of the word, a more literate lyricist or something like that. Like Towns Van Sant has like, is it Ace of Spades? What's the song that he has? Like, that. there's something through composed and thoughtful about that that I don't think Bob Dylan uh, could do. But you get the sense when you're dealing with Bob Dylan's early music, especially, like, he is in touch. It's like the planets aligned, and he was the vessel that um, was in touch with some kind of spiritual thing of the moment. You know, he happened to be very commercially successful, but you know, there are just epochs in the world where there is an artist who seems to be in touch with something otherworldly that the world needs to hear. 
Um, and it doesn't mean it's perfect, but it's the, it, it means someone is able to create the type of art that transforms, uh, uh, you know, the generation. It becomes emblematic of the generation. It, it, but it wasn't, you know, people say like Dylan was the voice of a generation. He, <laughs> you know, Bob Dylan was so powerful. He, he basically told the generation what their voice was going to be, you know? It's very easy when people like sort of glob onto an artist and they say, oh, he speaks for me. I mean, in some ways, I, I almost see David Foster Wallace as this way. I mean, I heard an interesting, you know, conversation with Brett Easton Ellis with another author about Infinite Jest. And, you know, was that really the novel of the 90s or is it sort of, you know, I think David Fo or uh, Brett Easton Ellis was kind of inferring that David Foster Wallace was kind of fraudulent. But, you know, from an objective perspective, it's like it doesn't matter what you think about craft or structure. When you read David Foster Wallace at his best, you know, his latter stuff is kind of, it feels kind of interrupted by whatever mental health stuff he was dealing with. But when you read Infinite Jest and even things like um, uh, a supposedly funny thing, a, fun, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, you really feel that David Foster Wallace is sort of the mechanism and the voice of a generation. And I, by that, I mean, you really feel that there is a spirit of the times, that that person has their finger on the pulse of something that people read and it is undeniable, you know? I mean, there I can read pages of Infinite Jest and it's like spooky how impactful it is. You know, you hear some of Dylan, even though even you just watch his old videos, the way he interacted with the media, there is a sort of... Uh, Sybil-like quality, a sort of prophet-like quality to how he was interacting. He was like in touch with something else. Now, I can't over-romanticize it in that, you know, if you also read a lot of biographies of Dylan, like he was like not a great guy and was like, you know, I'm sure he was, I mean, I think like all things, when someone is given that type of gift, it is also an overwhelming amount of power. And part of that person's like, <laughs> the reason they can't really hold it is because power corrupts, like no matter who, it, whoever it touches, power corrupts them. And even though I think like the film, um, The Last Tour of David Foster Wallace, I think that's kind of an over romanticization about who David Foster Wallace was. I do think what you see David Foster Wallace doing in Infinite Jest and even whatever, whatever, you know, I think, you know, the best artists are grappling with, you know, the gift of the creative and, and genuinely trying to create uh, the type of work that will move the world and be a meaningful, you know, contribution to history and the secular influence, you know, the type of power that that comes with. It's why preachers are corrupted. It's why artists are corrupted. Um, you know, uh, one looks at someone like Michael Jackson, who was a heinous child molester in all, uh, in all probability. And you just think, why couldn't he have been as beneficent as he presented himself as? Why, why is so much talent invested in somebody who, who also happens to be a vessel for that type of evil? You know? And maybe people hate hearing this. I'm sure Michael Jackson suffered on some level himself as a child. Um, but you just think, what is it? You know, I was watching, um, if you know 
if you have listened to this podcast, you know I'm kind of a fan of chess. I'm not any fucking good at it, but I certainly play a lot of chess. And there's a part of me that I sort of, you know, I sort of kind of know what's going on in the chess community right now. Like right now there's the, the sort of chess world cup is happening right now. But there's also a very famous um, chess player named Hikaru Nakamura who has a very good, um, apparently he streams on Twitch, but those videos get later uploaded to YouTube and YouTube constantly spits those at me. So I happen to see them. Um, but I know that Hikaru Nakamura, famously growing up, was considered a, a snob. And there's all these anecdotal stories about how he was just a dick to people, you know? And uh, I don't know if churlish is the right word, but he was just arrogant and um, would demean other players, especially his younger peers, or his young peers when he was young. There's another great um, um, chess YouTuber named John Bartholomew, who actually, I, I made this video years ago, years ago called I'm a Pawn. Um... Excuse me, and in it, I'm like yawning and burping at the same time. And um, I ate just before I did this, but um, in that video I'm upon, I played through a very famous game of Bobby Fischer called The Game of the Century. Um, but I ended up sending it to John Bartholomew, and he had tons of nice things to say about it. You know, and he was especially grateful that someone had created a chess video where the board was oriented properly. Um... I think, I think that's actually one reason why people love the Queen's Gambit so much is because, it, uh, like Searching for Bobby Fischer, it actually treated chess with respect. And there were clearly people on set who were um, trying to portray chess in a, in a good way. Whereas, you know, plenty of times you still see this. You're watching someone play a chess game uh, on TV and the pieces are just in a non-game position. There's just no way you would arrive at this. Or the, or the, the you know, the king, and the, king, the king and the queen are switched or... You know, there's a dark, you know, there's the, the board is turned the wrong direction where there's like a black square on the right. Um, uh, I feel like I was watching something recently where it was just a completely insane chess position. Um, you see this sometimes on Craigslist too. If you ever look for used drums, used drum sets, you can tell when the person selling it is not a drum drum player. They either, they're selling someone else's drum set or they came into possession of this thing that they're selling. But the toms are just positioned in a way that nobody would play them. You know, like they're just basically like 90 degrees to each other. And the snare is like at 180 degree angle practically. And it just, this, the drum set looks ridiculous. And to them, it's how someone who has never played drums would set a drum set up. But for someone who plays drums, it wouldn't look that way. Anyway, what the fuck am I talking about? I was talking about benevolence. Why couldn't Michael Jackson be benevolent? Oh, I don't know. I think the only thing I was driving at was this dude, John Bartholomew, tells a story about how Hikaru Nakamura was um, very rude to him as a young chess player. But um, what does that have to do with anything? Oh, Hikaru Nakamura on one of his streams, though, was saying, you know, to be good at anything, you have to be completely obsessed. And part of that obsession for many people is you have to, you know, you have to... Um, you kind of have to shed other qualities that people aspire to. And we've talked about this a little bit, which is, you know, to be successful, that kind of has to be your sole ambition. And I'm not saying it's impossible, but I do think people who tend to be incredibly successful in the secular world, although they present themselves as good people, it's not uncommon for them to be profoundly deficient in some fundamental human qualities that we all value. It's very easy for them to fake it but it's very difficult for them to actually possess them because part of what has contributed to their, their success is they are more than anything competitive. 
and they'll step on whoever they have to step to to get to their level of success. They have something driving them that will only be, they have a fire inside them that will only be quenched by their success. And everything else is after that. The quality of their relationships, whatever. Uh, you know, for some reason I'm thinking about Ellen Generous. You know, who's this person who has a talk show where she's, you know, very friendly and likes to dance and all that sort of stuff. And everyone who's ever worked for her, and this sort of came out in the media, says she's a fucking nightmare. And you think, well, that, you know, should that really surprise anyone? I mean, isn't it insane that somebody can present themselves? I mean, politicians, I mean, pastors, preachers, they're all this way. People can present themselves as this uh, beatified, if that's the word, <laughs> uh, perfect people, these saintly people. But they're really uh, bankrupt in many ways. Just that, um, that compartmentalization is just fascinating to me. Hmm. But anyway, rather than just talk about other people, how can I bring this back to myself? Um, yeah, I mean, in many ways, I feel like I've, uh, I've accomplished the same thing now where I've sort of found myself uh, waist deep in another topic when I'm, you know, I don't know, I should be talking about myself. <clears throat> I think I'm at, I, I think I was saying I'm at this place where you know, do I still create the thing for myself? You know, regardless of how other people are going to experience it, whether people think it's completely derivative or what, you know, do I need to make it for myself? Ah, bringing it all together, connecting all the dots for you. Does it sound insane? And I, I guarantee you this is why I was thinking of this. It's so, f I mean, this is why a stream of consciousness podcast is actually the most effective because one, you really give yourself the opportunity to learn things. Um... But it's, it's like therapy. You think you need to be talking about X, Y, and Z, or I could be sitting here, you know, during the week and sort of coming up with things and, and it, maybe it would be more entertaining or something. But there's a part of me that believes that there's, there's actually something deeper going on if you just sort of let yourself talk, you know, and it's not something that everybody will be into. But if, if that's, if you like the real real, if you like the real real, there, there might be something for you here. But as I've been going through the week thinking about these interrogations, and I've been thinking about it through the lens of a criminal, which is when you commit a crime. Oh, so, that's so profound. When you commit a crime, you need to be punished, right? Your only chance of salvation is if you end up exactly where you're supposed to be. Because that is the only chance that you have of finding peace within yourself, with yourself. Being reconciled to the choices that you've actually made. Getting your just desserts. There's a part of me that feels that creatively, which is I suspect that on some level, the fact that insight has already come out and there are ways in which it is frightening, frighteningly similar to something that I wanted to create for a long time and now think I can't do it. I think that is just another excuse possibly that I'm using not to create the thing. You know, that on some level, I just have to, I just have to do it. Maybe even now, especially because no one will ever see it because that is actually not what will make me happy. The only chance I have of being happy is doing the thing. 
Because even if I go on to do something else that is successful, I will never be able to lie to myself about my decision with regard to this project. You know what I mean? You know, maybe 10 years from now, I'll be so immersed in something else that I'll sort of laugh. I mean, this is sort of what's funny about life, you know? It's like if you had asked me when I was 20, uh, you know, if you asked me if I was 22, said, if you look up at 36 and you're not a successful songwriter, how are you going to feel? And I would have felt like my life is completely fucking useless and wasted. Well, of course, I have regrets about uh, not being a successful songwriter. I wish that would have happened. That would have been nice. But I actually don't feel that way. I mean, surprisingly, plot, the plot twist is that I have this other creative project that I'm now hinging my life and my self-worth on. So, of course, I'm trying to think ahead and, and think that maybe in 10 years is a chance I'll look back on this and think, well, of course, I would have made it. But now I have this other thing, this other thing that I'm hinging my uh, happiness on. Um... But it's like, if my, you know, ugh, even as I'm talking about this, I'm talking around uh, other things in my life that hopefully, if we can't get to them by episode 100, you better believe the next 100 episodes are going to be dedicated to this topic, or at least a large percentage of them. But um, it's just insane to me that when I look at my life, whether it's uh, a relationship or finances or having children or having a family, I I don't have strong feelings about those things, you know? Like, if that never happened, it just... I don't have a strong emotional reaction to it. And and there's a part of me that I, I feel guilty about that because I know that that's what other... some There are some people in my life who want that for me or they want it so much for themselves that I feel guilty about not wanting it for me. You know, for them, it's so intrinsically tied with, like, what a meaningful life is and what they want for themselves that... I feel silly wanting something else, if that makes sense. But um, I, it's not, I don't feel it on a visceral level of like, if I don't do this thing, I will live. You know, that to me, like if I died tomorrow not having done this thing, that would be, I feel like that would be the regret on my deathbed, you know? You know, I'm sure there will be other things that come to mind as well, but... And who knows, you know, I, there's this, uh, I, I've talked about this fucking thing a hundred times, but there is this video that we watch in our training, uh, as crisis line counselors. I facilitate this class where we talk about our attitudes about death and dying. And we watch this Ted talk from this dude, BJ, BJ Miller, uh, which you can find yourself. It's called, it's called what matters at the end of life. And it's this whole idea that priorities change, you know, that people who are actually dying, the things that they value are very different from what they valued in life. It's usually small sensorial delights. Um, but as I think about it today, you know, I think if I was diagnosed with, you know, a life-threatening illness or a terminal illness tomorrow, um, you know, not having the chance to do this thing, I feel like would be the regret of my life. Not whether or not I did or did not stay with this person or married this or that person or had kids or didn't have kids or didn't earn this much money or got that job or didn't get that job. And I know I said this at the end of the last episode, but it's like when I think about what makes a meaningful life, you know, I mean, it sounds crazy to think about it, but it's like, 
I know that the buck stops with me. I know I'm responsible, and I know, and I know that what keeps me from doing this is fear is because I've never felt more certain about anything in my life. I've never felt more certain about anything in my life. I've never felt more called to do anything. I've never felt the wind at my back, more signs from the cosmos to do a thing. And yet I, I didn't do it. And so I think it's really sad. I mean, it really feels like a tragedy to me because I think, you know, and we'll see. Maybe something else will enter my life that I'll feel completely swept, swept away by. And uh, and maybe having had this regret, um, like, for example, there's this, uh, it happened on the Adam Carolla podcast years ago, but he was speaking with some filmmaker or producer who had this idea for a documentary. And somebody came in first and like got the rights and optioned the rights for this person's life or whatever the fuck it was and made the documentary. And Adam Carolla reached out to the guy and says, hey man, you must be pretty upset um, that these other guys got there. And the guy's, excuse me, response was very simple. He said, you know what? They were the first to it and uh, I should have acted sooner. And uh, you know, it was my fault and you, you better believe I'm not gonna make the same mistake twice. And it was like, damn, you know, that's kind of the right attitude. Hey, it sucks, but you know what? It was my fault. I got to make sure I don't, I don't do the same thing again. Uh, there's a part of me that sort of fantasizes that if I ever do feel called to do something the way I felt for this past project, that I will do it. But there's also a part of me that feels like I can't move on. <laughs> I can't move on with my life until I've done this thing. And uh, I've never felt more certain about anything, and yet I still can't bring myself to do it. Now, what the fuck is that about? Because if this feeling, something I've never felt more strongly about in my life, can't compel me to uh, to, to do something, what do I what do I, what am I waiting to feel? And also, from another perspective, what is standing in my way? What is, it's like, what is, you know, I'm thinking, what's that uh, common, uh, is it like Flatville, Flatland? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> like, if you live in a two-dimensional space, like, you only see something in three dimensions in, like, a, a sliver, you can't actually see the enormity of what's in front of you because you only see it from this limited perspective. But in that sense, I think, like, what is so large and in front of me that I can't even see it? I only intuit it. It's like the, what is the dark matter of my life that I can't, no matter how, whatever microscope or telescope I use to look at my life, I know there's dark matter, not because I can see it, but because I see the influence it has on other celestial bodies. Damn. Man, we're getting fucking profound here. But you know what I mean by that? Like in astronomy, you know, binary star systems. It's like sometimes they, through telescopes, they can't see the other one because the uh, basically the exposure one of these stars is so bright that it's that it you know the exposure actually outshines the presence of the other star but they can in, they can deduce that it is there because of the gravitational effect the gravitational effect it has on the body that they're observing i believe dark matter works this way as well we think wow to actually explain a lot of these phenomenon or these you know phenomenon we're experiencing in the cosmos there has to be this thing this and we don't know what it is exactly, but we can sort of guess its physical properties or what it must contain by our understanding of the cosmos. What 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 uh, what it must be what it must be constituted of 
you know, because of the effect that we're seeing, right? And I think that they've proved its, its existence. So that's what we're dealing with, folks. We're dealing with the dark matter of my life. Also, probably not a bad title for the episode, but what is so, what profound barrier is in front of me that is so, so apparent, and yet I can't name it? I call it, today I call it fear. It's like the Tao. I do not. I do not know what to call it. I do not know what to call it. Therefore, I call it the Tao. I do not know what to call it. Therefore, I call it fear. Hmm. Yeah. Profound stuff. You know, I'm actually looking at the clock. My computer screen has gone dark, which I have been looking at for the time, which is actually kind of scary. I may look over there and realize I haven't even fucking been recording this. Um. But I, I have no idea how much time left we have left in this episode. So if this is short or long, I, I'm not going to say I'm sorry, but I, I guess I'm just sort of playing it as it lays. Um, what else to be said? I guess, you know, I'm sort of talking uh, obtusely about what is the next step going to be for me, but I think it has to be, I think it has to be this thing for better or worse. Um, and that terrifies me. Because I really, you know, I don't think I can do it. <laughs> I don't think I can pull it off in a way that is satisfactory to me. Um, but again, I am starting to wonder if that's even the point. Yeah. I mean, I... I I don't think it's a coincidence I've been thinking more and more about religion because I think, you know, when I try to justify it to myself, why have I even been interested in religion? I, I can't pretend I know what the answer is yet. I mean, my entire life I've been completely interested in, in religion and religious text. And even even when I factually or um, in terms of doctrine or literal beliefs vehemently disagree with everything that somebody's saying, there's something about their conviction that I completely relate with and I find inspiring. And I think it's this idea that you have to live a life that is meaningful to you. And even though I completely disagree with what somebody's saying, I completely disagree. Like if the world, if everybody in the world believed what they believe, the world might be a worse place. And yet the fact that they believe it so fully that it animates every aspect of their life and informs everything that they do from the time they wake up to the time they go to, the time they go to sleep, every word that they say, I believe them. And that to me is, it's more than worthy of respect. It's like what we should all aspire to, you know? And it's it's like, you know, there's a part of me that needs to like, I'm trying to adopt that in my own life. I'm trying to live a life that makes sense to me because I, I have spent all of my life, and I can't, this is a little overdramatic, but... I have spent so much of my life trying to justify my choices to other people that it's actually, it's been a detriment to me. And it's not like I, you know, there's plenty of people who look up at 35 and they're like halfway through their medical career and they have these sorts of uh, cliche epiphanies that one has in therapy, which is like, oh, I'm only a doctor because my dad wanted me to be, you know, and I haven't, that hasn't been my life. You know, I've been an aspiring creative my whole life and you know, I've enjoyed uh, some success in those areas, probably more than I ever thought I would in many ways. But um, 
So it's not like I've been living a complete fucking lie, but in a way, it's kind of that, um, you know, uh, I can't even recall the Bible verse, but you know, it's like Jesus says, like, I spit you out because you are tepid. Like there are many people, <laughs> there are many people who consider themselves, like there's an old um, hymn or something that says like, there's a lot of people talking about heaven that aren't going to go there. <laughs> like, you know, that's how I feel. Like, I feel like I've been preaching the word and yet I know I'm not saved. You know, I've been baptized. I go to church. And in that sense, I'm talking about creativity. I'm saying all the right words, but I know my life is not a living example of what I preach. And although I don't feel able to do it, although I don't feel that I'll even be successful, there's a part of me that thinks if I really want to I think it's the Sermon on the Mount, but it's like Jesus talks about entering through the narrow gate. You have to give up everything. You have to really give yourself over to this. You have to come alone. There's a part of me that feels like I'm at, I'm standing on the threshold of the narrow gate of the creative, you know, and it's like, you already heard the call. It doesn't matter what the world is doing. It doesn't matter what the world is asking of you for yourself, for your own judgment. Like for me, it's not like I'm going to go face God on his throne or Peter at the pearly white gates, but I do feel like at the end of my life, I'm going to face Anubis who's going to like weigh my heart against a feather of truth and determine if I am found wanting. And I, you know, I do believe To do the thing will influence that. You know, when I when I weigh my heart against myself or look at myself in the mirror, you know, if I don't do it, I'll be living. You know, I don't know. Obviously, I've run out of steam. It's like my life. I feel like I'm on the cusp of some profound statement of truth. And uh, it bursts like a bubble. You know, that memento moment I talk about, Guy Pearson, the Nolan film Memento. He's about to have a profound realization. He, he's saying, remember this, remember this. There's some truth that you just saw. Just don't forget it. Hold on to it. And then his memory fades and he's back to being lost in the world, you know, and he has to find this insight all over again. So anyway, I'm not sure where we are at in our time here, but let's just, uh, we'll call it there. Okay. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, you can on Apple podcasts and Spotify, everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast. My others will also, if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, send them your favorite episode. If you want to watch the video podcast, you can. Hopefully, we recorded this. Uh, you can uh, watch the videos at thisismpod.com. Uh, that's uh, thisismpod.com. Oh, sorry. Um, uh, you can watch the episodes there or click through on our YouTube channel and watch the videos. 
Um, you can like and subscribe and all that good stuff. Um, we are almost... Our time here is almost finished, folks. Uh, we are in the gloaming of the podcast, as far as, uh, as, far as I know. Um, so I hope you stay tuned for the next couple weeks and see uh, how we're going to wrap this thing up. But um, until next week, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And ciao for now.